So, does anyone have any questions about things that we've talked about in our previous evening discussions? All right. Well, then we'll just continue on more or less from where we left off last night, uh, which we had talked about the purification of virtue, which is the first of the three parts of the Eightfold Path. And we had also begun speaking about the purification of mind, or the uh, meditation section of the Eightfold Path. Uh, we had talked about uh, uh, right effort and right mindfulness, and uh, right concentration. So, of course, meditation is where we develop our concentration and mindfulness. And they are a very important part of the path, as we've already discussed, and as I think has already come quite clear to everyone. Because until you have the ability to focus your attention and control your mind somewhat, it's very difficult to uh, to examine yourself and to examine the reality that you live in in a, a way that is going to lead to insight. And in addition to that, you need a very strong mindful awareness that is developed in, in meditation. So uh, you all are familiar from the handout and from previous discussions with the 10 stages of meditation. And generally, it's at the uh, seventh stage when a person has single-pointedness, even though it may not be effortless, that uh, they can really begin to uh, achieve some significant progress in insight, in gaining insight, um, by having uh, by having direct experiences through the focused, concentrated, highly aware mind. Um, the specific insights that we need uh, to have a deep understanding of in order to achieve awakening are insights into the three characteristics of phenomena, which are their impermanence, their selflessness, or lack of a lack of any sort of self nature, and the third is that uh, attachment and clinging to them in any way, because they are impermanent, and because they lack a self nature, only leads to suffering. So these are the insights that meditation is preparing us to be able to understand, and so that brings us to the third major part of the Eightfold Path, which is uh, right view and right understanding. So all, of, all of these parts of the path work together, but right view and right understanding. Uh, we talked a little bit about the purification of view, which is coming to understand that are, first of all, right view is looking at yourself and, uh, and the world and your experience from a more realistic uh, 
empirical point of view rather than from the way that we usually do, which is recognizing that your life consists of a series of experiences that you have rather than a world of things and a thing that occupies that. And then understanding nama and rupa, uh, mentality and materiality, uh, understanding the five aggregates. Um, and all of that is a purification of view. Uh, we talked about uh, craving and its role in producing <coughs> suffering. So right view is realizing that all the other beings that you come in contact with are suffering beings. And all of the things that they do, are, all of the acts that they commit, are being committed uh, out of ignorance and as their attempt to uh, escape from their own suffering and to find some pleasure and happiness in life. And so when you understand that, that they are all exactly the way you are, struggling in this way, then this uh, tends to give rise to compassion and understanding. So even though people may do things that harm us and that hurt us, if we recognize where that's coming from, that it's out of ignorance. And also with what we understand about the five aggregates and about karma, we realize that uh, they're actually harming themselves even more than they are harming us. And so this may make it easier for us to, uh, to treat them with patience and understanding and compassion rather than harming ourselves by becoming uh, uh, angry and aversive and filled with ill will instead. So this attitude of compassion and understanding that comes out of the fundamental uh, recognition of the suffering nature of humans and the role that craving and ignorance plays in that is, is very important. So, which brings us into the, you know, when you have right view and right understanding, applying these and, and really bringing the understanding through its own perfection comes through uh, insight. Because that's the only thing that can help us break through our own uh, uh, the, our, our own ignorance that we're trapped in. So, what that means in terms of those three characteristics, when we first understand that everything is impermanent, this begins to move us in the right direction. Then we examine not, not so the, the non-self nature of ourselves in the way that we talked about before. What we need to do is to be able to go from that being a sort of an intellectual understanding to be a direct realization that, wow, in fact, this, this uh, self is just a fabrication. It's just a uh, mental construct. It's just an idea, it's just a concept. 
so that uh, you really and truly know that, even though at that point things continue to seem to be the way they have before, that there's a self uh, behind all of this. So that's, that's the things that we've talked about uh, quite a bit up to now. The other aspect of it that we really didn't go into is that it's not just our self that is a fabrication and an illusion. And the, the thing is that when you realize that the self is, that the self that you thought you were doesn't really exist, and that what you are is best described as the five aggregates, then there's a tendency to start having the thinking that just the five aggregates, I'm just my mind, and I'm just my brain, and that's just materiality. And, and so this, and th this seems like a, a dreadful realization. It's a materialistic nihilism. Uh, nihilism, everything becomes meaningless and pointless. I'm just this freaky accident of nature that happened when matter got together in a particular way. And that's very discouraging and that's not uplifting at all. But that is a very... So you, you can only have that idea and you can only have that conception so long as you're still mired in ignorance because what you've done is you've said oh my precious self doesn't really exist but everything else does and everything else is just matter and that's uh, see and that's that's what makes it a problem and the truth is that all of this that we perceive is just a just as much a fabrication it's just as much a product of our mind as our self is. In other words, everything is empty of a self-nature, just as empty of a self-nature as we are. So that we, and so we didn't have much chance to talk about emptiness, but that's, that's where the emptiness aspect of it comes in, is we aren't reducing ourselves to just some strange fluke of, of materiality. We're breaking our, that strong, strong attachment that we have to uh, the psychological attachment to the belief in the self as being substantially real. But we're not reducing ourselves in that way to just materiality because all of the materiality we experience, the world as we experience, is also of that same nature. It's also empty of any kind of self-existence. It also has the same origin. It has the same origin as a projection of our mind arising out of our mental formations. And so that is, that is the reason that, that we, if we understand that, that we uh, will not fall into uh, the uh, wrong view of uh, nihilism and materialism. So what happens when a person awakens is that they, well, the result of a person awakening is that they know 
absolutely with deep certainty the emptiness of the self and the emptiness of all phenomena. And the way that they know that is because the event that brings about their awakening is that the mind, for a short time, ceases its fabrication. You get to the point in your practice where the mind stops creating the illusion. And so in that moment, you experience the true nature of uh, reality. You experience the ultimate truth. And uh, that is what makes the difference because in ultimate truth, there is no self and you have the direct experience of that and the direct realization of that. And in ultimate reality, all of this is empty and you have the direct experience of that. So even though after that experience and thereafter you still continue to, your mind still continues to project a world and to project a self, you won't, you can't ever really be fooled by it in the same way again. It's like, does everyone know the story of uh, um, uh, the Wizard of Oz? Everyone know Wizard of Wizard? You don't know the story of Wizard of Oz? Oh. Well, it's a, it's, it's a popular American children's story about a little girl named Dorothy and her dog Toto. And, and there's a tornado and they get picked up and carried to a different world. It's filled with witches and magical beings and uh, they meet a, a tin man and a scarecrow and uh, a lion. And they go on this great search. But anyway, they, uh, Dorothy, of course, wants to go home. Her companions, the tin woodman wants a heart, and the scarecrow wants a brain, and the lion wants courage. So they've all got their quest, so they go in search of the Wizard of Oz, and they go where the Wizard of Oz's great uh, uh, temple or palace is, and, uh, and there's this huge booming voice and lights that flash and all sorts of fantastic things that happen, and this, this huge powerful voice booms out, and, says, who are you and what are you doing here? You know, it's all very impressive. But as the story goes on, the reason I mention it, there's a certain point in the story where uh, they get behind the curtain and they see that the wizard isn't this super being that it sounded like. It's just this little bald pot-bellied man back there, you know, with a big loudspeaker and some controls to make great things happen. Yeah? And the point is, once they'd seen behind the curtain, they could no longer believe in, in the wizard, right? And that's, that's what we're after, is to get to that place where uh, we've seen behind the curtain, and the curtain is our mind's projections. And so we need to see behind the curtain, just for a moment, and then that will forever free us from being caught by the, the, those illusions again because we know them for what they are. We know what's behind them. So, so that, is, that is the goal of awakening. Um, 
that there, that is the goal that results in, in the awakening. And it's an awakening because then we awaken from the dream that we have lived in, which has been the cause of our dissatisfaction uh, to the reality, which, you know, is much better than the dream. So, I think the modern day equivalent is uh, the movie The Matrix. <laughs> the Matrix, yes, right, yes. Every, probably everyone knows the movie The Matrix, yes, right. There's this world, this whole world is generated by a, a computer and what lies behind it is, you know, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the, yes, you're right, that's the modern version. But still, somehow the Wizard of Oz gets the idea of what... <laughs> It's the idea of that. So it only takes one look to achieve first fruition, but and how many looks does it take to become fully enlightened? <laughs> now that's a very good question. Okay, the question, you know, the, yes, the question is, okay, so if it takes one look to get to the first stage, the stream entry, how many looks does it take to become <laughs> to become fully enlightened? And that's good. That's what we. That's what we need to talk about next, I think, so just to clarify this. And also to relate this back to where we originally started with the issue of craving. To truly be free from suffering, you have to eliminate this tendency you were born with to crave in reaction to all pleasant and unpleasant experiences. And of course, as you notice, you know, if you have been mindful of feelings, pleasant and unpleasant pleasant feelings are constantly arising. It's not just the really big pleasant and unfeelings that are driving this, it's all of the pleasant and unpleasant feelings. So to get beyond suffering, we need to get beyond this innate compulsion that arises in response to all pleasant and unpleasant experience. And the other thing that we talked about is that, uh, that this craving is, uh, it, it, is, it has its support in the ignorant belief in the self. And so really, uh, going from the first stage of enlightenment to full enlightenment is a story of changes uh, that take place in terms of craving and in terms of the uh, attachment and the belief in the self. So there's four stages of enlightenment. And the very first stage is called stream entry. And that's what happens with your the first time you get to look behind the curtain. And the effect that it has, of course, as I said, is that although you will go back to experiencing things as if they are real, you never fooled by them in the same way. And you go back to experiencing this sense of self as though it is real, and you never, but you never really get fooled by it anymore but you keep, you keep having the experiences of there is a self. So I should just I, 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 I give it to you straight from the source what uh, this enlightenment stuff is about. Um, ooh, that's, that's not the page. There you go. This must be. That's not the page. 
goodness. Let's give me a moment here. All right. Thank you. four stages of enlightenment and uh, they're defined in terms of uh, the overcoming of ten different fetters. You know what I mean by fetters? Alright, so there are these ten fetters that we have that need to be overcome. Uh, these ten are Um, let's see. And untaught ordinary man lives with his heart possessed and enslaved by uh, attachment to the view of self, by uncertainty, that's doubt about, and it's referring specifically to doubt about. Uh, the ultimate nature of things, doubt about the Dhamma, doubt about enlightenment, doubt about the Buddha's teaching, uncertainty about what happens when a person dies, uncertainty about all these kinds of questions. That's the second. By misapprehension of the efficacy of rules, rites, and rituals, the ordinary man tends to be, in some cases, superstitiously attached to rules and rites and rituals. But even somebody who is not terribly superstitious still uh, tends to have a strong belief that uh, in the power and efficacy of things that are basically entirely within the realm of illusion. That's rules, rites, and rituals are our, our attempt to manipulate reality through through uh, behaving. You know, when we talked last night about uh, virtue, the belief that, well, if I follow these rules, then uh, somehow or another, some other power, some power outside of yourself and your own mind is going to produce particular results. That's an attachment to rules. If I break the rules, some power outside of myself is going to punish me. So that's attachment. And, and it's very, very common. Even, even the most uh, uh, non-superstitious kind of people still have a strong tendency to believe in that. And then rites and rituals uh, are very strong. So this is the third fetter. Uh, the fourth is uh, desire for uh, worldly pleasures, for sense pleasures. The fifth is ill will and aversion, hatred, all forms of 
negative, uh, uh, negative craving. So uh, those are the first five, and they are uh, they are an important group by themselves. So if you just review them so that you can remember them, they are the belief in the self. And it's interesting that the Buddha put it very clearly, enslavement to the belief in the self. Because that's really the way it works. This idea of self enslaves us to always, we're always trying to act as, as though it was an inner ego God. The second is doubt. The third is the belief in the efficacy of rules, rites, and rituals. The fourth is desire in all of its forms, and the fifth is ill will in all of its so forms. Desire in all kinds of, uh, in all forms? Yeah. Oh. It's only sensual pleasure, but... Well, yes. The, uh, there is one kind of desire, that's what we're coming up to in the next fetters. Oh. There's one kind of, there's one type of desire that uh, is not included in the fifth. Okay. Okay. The second set of five, the first set of five, the first three of those are eliminated when somebody reaches the first stage of enlightenment called stream entry. And the next two are eliminated when a person reaches the third stage. The last five are eliminated when the person reaches the fourth stage of arhatship, uh, becomes like the Buddha. So this last five, the last ones to be overcome to reach the fourth stage of enlightenment are, these are the last desires. They are desire for existence in the formless realm or the form realm. And uh, for those of you that don't know what that means, this world we live in is called the desire realm or the sense realm. But there are two other realms that a person experiences in the deepest states of meditative concentration called the, the jhanas in Pali or jhanas in uh, Sanskrit. So you may know them by this name, jhana or jhana. And there's four form absorptions. These, these are states of meditation, very deep states of meditation characterized by uh, great, uh, they're very refined, characterized by great uh, uh, happiness. And, bliss. and then there are four more, even more refined states that are called the formless dhyanas or jhanas. So someone who has reached the third stage of enlightenment but has not yet become a Buddha uh, still has a craving for existence in these more refined realms of existence. So those are the first two. Uh, of these fetters is craving for uh, existence in the form realm and craving for existence in the formless realm. The third is the conceit I am. The fourth is restlessness. And the fifth is ignorance. So restlessness is a third? In this, this, yes, and needs a little bit of explanation. All five of these have to do with the same thing. They have to do with still being subject to the inherent sense 
of I, the sense of I am. So in the, the first, when the first person reaches the first stage of enlightenment, they overcome their belief in and their attachment to the, the view that there is a self. But they still continue to experience this sense of I am, this sense of separate existence. And as, even as their wisdom becomes more and more refined so that they don't believe in any of the ideas associated with the self anymore, they still have this feeling of being a separately existent being. There is still somehow an existent that is separate from everything else. And so... The last one, I'm sorry. What? The last one you said. Uh, you said, uh, I am restlessness and... Ignorance. And ignorance. ignorance. And ignorance. ignorance. So that is... That sounds great, bro. The ignorance is... The ignorance referred to is that there, there, these things are all five really the same thing. The ignorance referred to and the conceit I am and the desire for existence in these higher realms, all for the, are they the same thing. The, the being still feels like they are a separate. They still feel separate. And by feeling separate, feeling that they exist separately, they want to continue their existence. And even though they're disenchanted with the sense realm, they, they, there's still a craving to continue their existence. So naturally, they will crave to continue their existence in these highest realms because they still have a sense that I am. And that is the ignorance. And that is what causes the restlessness. They've overcome... The, the restlessness corresponds to the dissatisfaction and suffering that we experience because we still tend to believe in self and we're still subject to craving. The person, when they reach the third stage, they still have the sense I am, but there is no more craving except the craving associated with this craving to continue to exist. And so our craving causes us to experience dissatisfaction and suffering. The craving of a person on the third stage of the path, their craving for continued existence manifests as restlessness. So they don't experience suffering the way they do, way we, that we do. But they, they are not totally at peace. They have an inner restlessness. Does that explain it? Uh, thank you. That, the restlessness there? So restlessness is like a very, very subtle form of suffering, a very, very subtle form of dissatisfaction because you're still craving for existence in spite of all the wisdom that has been acquired up to that stage. I have a question. Yeah. You said that um, you have created our hotship with like a Buddha. Yes. And so, I mean, this might be, you know, my view of Buddhism is pretty limited to what I've learned at Shilai Temple plus what I've read. And what I understand from Shilai Temple is that there's arhats mm -hmm. who kind of have a practice that's more solitary and purification based. Yeah. And the bodhisattvas who are reaching out and connecting and helping. <laughs> that's right. And then 
then there's Buddha. So it's kind of in that order in terms of how enlightened you are. And so, so, so what say you? Is that, uh, is that did anything? Or did I get yeah. it wrong? Well, well I, I, no, you didn't. Let me explain that to you. Uh, there is an, an interesting thing here that will come up. But, okay. An arahat, the Buddha was an arahat. And so, and, and, and Buddha means a fully awakened one. Now, all arahats are Buddhas in that sense. So, uh, the, an arahat is the highest stage of enlightenment. You can't be more enlightened than an arahat. You can't be more awakened than an arahat. Okay? Now, the person that we refer to as the Buddha, the Buddha, as opposed to all these other Buddhas that have come along, all these other arahats, the Buddha is a Samasam Buddha. So he's different than all the other arahats. But not that he is more awakened. Because according to the sutras, according to the teaching of the Buddha himself, you can't be more awakened than to be an arhat. An arhat is completely without any sense of self at all and has, uh, and has totally removed the last vestiges of ignorance. And it's not possible to be more awakened than that. According to the original texts and teachings of the Buddha himself. But the same texts say the Buddha was different than these other arhats because how come everybody that didn't become an arhat as a result of the Buddha's teaching become just as powerful a teaching as he did? And that is because he is a Sanasam Buddha and, uh, and that's, you know, Namotasa Bhagavato Arhato Sanasam Buddha. So he is a Samasam Buddha, which means he is uh, the most. Uh, uh, Samasam means like the, the the most of the most sort of, you know the okay. the, the, the most. Of, yeah, and how he came to be a Samasam Buddha is that he spent many countless lifetimes over many eons being reborn over and over again purifying in his, his virtue and as a result of all of that very long period of purification he in his uh, in, in, when he was born in the lifetime where he became the Samasam Buddha as a result of that purification he also acquired the power to uh, teach the, the Dharma and to bring every other kind of being into uh, uh, enlightenment. So in other words, he's not more awakened than any other arhat, but he has some special powers and abilities that they don't have. And there's a lot of arhats that they, they could never teach anybody to meditate, you know. <laughs> or, or it's, because it's not it's not one of the things that they're past karma gave them the ability to do. So he's a Samasam Buddha as a result of all these lifetimes. Now, when um, 
a little over 500 years after the time of the Buddha, between 500 and 800 years after the time of the Buddha, there arose this new uh, uh, approach to Buddhism of called the Mahayana. And it's called, uh, it's call, it calls itself the Mahayana, uh, which means great vehicle, because the idea of Mahayana is that rather than trying to become enlightened for your own sake, you're going to try to become enlightened for the sake of all other beings. So, in the way it started out is, is, well, that was a good idea. I'll just keep coming back and I'll become a Samasambuddha too. You know? And then there was a whole great thing emerged out of that. Uh, and so now there is, uh, you know, there are different Buddhas in different realms and Amitabha or Amida is the uh, coming Buddha, the future Buddha, the next Buddha. When the Dharma disappears from the world, Amitabha will appear as the next Samasambuddha. Oh, no, sorry, yes. you're, you're, you're right. <laughs> that is my, sorry. Good for you. You're yeah, good for you. Yeah, <laughs> Maitreya, okay, yeah, I, I yes. I'm oh, sorry. That's, tape, right? That's right. <laughs> I, I do get words, I, names especially mixed up, Jerry, so you'll have to be good nice. <laughs> So, uh, Anyway, and so now uh, the situation is that Maitreya is, uh, is in his Buddha paradise waiting for the day when he's due to come and there's others. But anyway, as in the Mahayana tradition, what we do is we take as our goal to become enlightened for the sake of all other beings. So we want to become Samasam Buddha so that we can bring all beings to enlightenment. So is the Buddha... Before he was Samasam Buddha, was he a regular Buddha? And then he kind of went back for more and more and more and more, and then he's a Samasam well, Buddha? Um, no, he, he was not. Uh, he, okay. and, and this was never quite explained by the Buddha and, and the Buddha's life. But later on, the explanation was, no, what he did is he deferred his final enlightenment on purpose yeah. so that he would become a Samasam Buddha. Okay. Anyway, this continued to evolve, and uh, at first it was very noble and very uh, uh, inspiring that, you know, instead of striving to become enlightened for my own sake, I'll become enlightened for all other beings. And this is very useful, it's very motivating. It will keep you on the path. It'll give you an extra reason. And it, um, it gives rise to very powerful teaching about compassion and helps people to put more focus on developing compassion. And then those people that called themselves Mahayana, they were in the same monasteries with the, all the other people that have been practicing the same tradition, but they started calling the others Hinayana, lesser vehicle. <laughs> um, and then they started saying some things that are ridiculous that, that uh, you will hear. But when you think about them, and if you read about things and become more familiar with the Dharma, you realize how ridiculous they are. One of them is that you'll hear it said in the Mahayana tradition that to become an arhat is selfish. Right? And that arhats are 
selfish beings. Well, they have completely transcended any sense of self. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, uh, it's sort of a silly thing. Anyway, so this is a wonderful, good idea, an effective, uh, an effective teaching for inspiring people and produced a great growth and expansion in Buddhist teaching in many areas. The Mahayana is very wonderful. Uh, but of course, some people were saying, you know, well, I don't know if I really want to spend countless eons being reborn. You know, How many years is a eon? Huh? How many years is a eon? Uh, it's an eon is made up of kalpas and a kalpa is made up of something else and that's made up of something else. So it's almost like it's, the it's unit, the, Yeah, the smallest yeah. unit is like 100,000 years and the next level up is, is uh, 108,000 years and the next level up is like 100,000 times that and the next level up. So I mean it's um, just absolutely astronomical number of years. Older than scientists say the universe is. So. <laughs> well, this, this explains something that I never understood mm-hmm. at the temple. Because they kept saying, well, the Bodhisattva chooses to delay his enlightenment so that he can help others. Mm-hmm. And my immediate question was so doesn't that make the Buddha to be kind of a chump? Yeah. Yeah. See, they 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 want to make out all of the other arhats out to be chumps, while they're all you know going to become Buddhas. So, so. So he so Bodhisattva delays so that when he finally is enlightened, he's enlightened to the type of Buddha that can teach. Others, yeah. as opposed to just someone that is fully enlightened and right. has got it all figured out. And call him crazy. Well, Kind of put, put. It's, it's unsophisticated and it's popular. So, okay, what it does is it creates different levels of Buddhist practitioners. It creates Buddhist practitioners who are striving, who are bodhisattvas, and they're try striving to ascend through the different bodhisattva levels, so that you know when they get uh, to the highest level, then they will go and they will acquire their own. Buddha realm, and they'll wait in that Buddha heaven until the time is right for them to. Yeah. But I think that's just one definition of Bodhisattva, because I've heard mm-hmm. many other definitions of Bodhisattva. I look at Bodhisattva vows and yeah. such. That. So that's you know that's one. Well, that is one. One. Yeah. I was taught there. Yeah, no, the, trust me, there's lots. Th- throughout the sutras, the term Bodhisattva is used. And that's anybody who is bent on achieving enlightenment. So all of the people that in, in, in these books who become arhats were bodhisattvas first. Oh, okay. They were all bodhisattvas. And bodhisattvas united like united first provision. No, that's not true. The bodhisattva. Oh, is anybody? Uh, oh, okay. And, and so, 
in the Mahayana, and keep in mind, this is all stuff that was generated thousands of years or more after the time of the Buddha. They come up with these bodhisattva levels, called, or bhumis, or levels, of which most commonly they speak of 10, but there's 12, there's 18, there's different systems of levels. And uh, usually they will say that uh, the first bodhisattva level corresponds to stream entry. But if you look at the actual definition of it, it's really the third bodhisattva level that corresponds to what the Buddha himself called stream entry, or the first level of enlightenment. But, and you know, these are just, they, these are just uh, theologies between different, uh, <laughs> different, different churches. And, and even if you look at, you know, uh, from the point of view of of ultimate truth, none of this stuff makes sense, right? From the point of view of the teaching on ultimate truth, including the Mahayana teaching, all the higher Mahayana teachings, when you understand them and you look at all this stuff, all of this stuff is obviously a kind of, all you can say is it's a metaphor or an analogy or a teaching tool because it, it has no possible reality in terms of ultimate truth, in terms of ultimate truth of enlightenment, in terms of uh, uh, emptiness, the, you know, the, the uh, so, so I'd say don't, don't get caught up in it, enjoy it, it's, you know, it's, well, that's why, right, but I get towards, yeah, yeah that's why, that's why I told you, I'm not wrong, don't go to the, I'm just trying to get through a tour. So, um, in the Mahayana belief, yes. there's a bodhisattva, a higher level of awakening or whatever than an arhat. No. No. The bodhisattvas. And until the tenth, until the tenth and highest level of bodhisattva, they're all lower levels of enlightenment, you know. And there's sort of a dispute: is the uh, is does one to ten go from stream enterer first stage to third stage uh, to to fourth stage, or is it from three to ten that goes, you know? But but uh, yeah. So so you're saying. Uh, Tenth stage bodhisattva is equivalent to an arhat. Uh, well, no, no, tenth level is equivalent to an arhat in every way except that uh, he has not, he or she has not um, released themselves fully into the. Uh, it's called the nirvana without residue. Right. Okay. okay. So uh, you might think of them as being just on the borderline, but not quite an arhat, because uh, according to the Mahayana tradition, once you become an arhat, then uh, you can never come back and save the world. Okay. So a tenth level bodhisattva has all, and I know you know I. Uh, 
they have all the perfections, but there's some somehow one little thread that keeps them. Oh, I remember what it is. The thread that keeps them in is their vow. That's right. It, it is their vow. That's what that's what keeps them. From. I always thought the thread that kept them in was their their desire to help others. That is the vow. So if there's others, that's right. Then you have to yeah. be separate. That's right. You have to be separate. Exactly. Yeah. The only way you can save others is to be. There are others. <laughs> you have to be not other. <laughs> you have to be the not other. But anyway, let's go back to the four uh, four stages here, and what the Buddha had to say about. It. Okay. He said there are bhikkhus who, with the exhaustion of the first three fetters, and the first three fetters are. Attachment to the belief in self, doubt, and uh, belief in the efficacy of rules, rites, and rituals. Okay? So, bhikkhus who have exhausted the first three fetters have entered the stream. Their stream entrance. That's the first stage of enlightenment. They are no more subject to uh, perdition. Uh, they are certain of rightness and destined to enlightenment. Next, secondly, there are bhikkhus who, with the exhaustion of the three fetters and the attenuation of desire and uh, ill will and delusion, are once returners, returning once to this world. They will make an end of suffering. Okay, so the second stage of enlightenment, it's usually called the once return, is they, they've completely rid of the first three fetters, and the next two fetters are hugely diminished, but still present. They still have craving. They still have this sense, desire, and aversion, but it's very, it's very weak. Okay. How weak is weak? Is that How weak is very weak? Yeah. Um, can you just can you give a like, concrete example? Okay. Well, a concrete example is that as that a. a a once returner will still feel, feel the arising of irritation and ill will, or still feel the arising of desire, but it has no great force, and it's uh, very easily set aside. And the you know uh, the way I would describe it is though it's become weak and timid, and it's still there, but it used to be in charge, and it's no longer. When when a once returner is confronted with with very very powerful sources of desire that they were conditioned to in their life, or very very powerful sources of hatred that they were profoundly conditioned to, like if a once returner had uh, a terrible painful childhood that was due to a particular person and and they hated that person for most of their life, then in the contact with a person, there's still going to be ill will arising. Right? But it won't overwhelm them. It, it will come up, but it won't have the strength. Okay. And then that well, won't still. That's right. Their, their judgment will. What? Yes, their judgment will still remain clear. They may experience the ill will, and they may. Uh, uh, focus their mindfulness on it, you know, and it may cause them to suffer somewhat, but uh, they won't succumb to it. 
happens. Okay. So that's the second stage of enlightenment called the once returner. And then there are bhikkhus who, with the destruction of the five, first five fetters, are destined to reappear spontaneously elsewhere and will there finally attain nirvana, never returning meanwhile from that world. These are called the non-returners. This is the third stage of enlightenment. So they have completely eliminated sense, desire, and aversion. And so they are free from every kind of suffering that is caused by desire and aversion, except for the restlessness, which was number nine, that still exists because of their uh, craving for existence in these higher realms. And that was the sixth and seventh fetish, right? And that craving for existence in these higher realms is, is there because of the eighth fetter, which is the sense I am. Okay. okay. So that's the third level. And they're called the non-returner because supposedly if they don't become fully enlightened in this lifetime, they still won't be reborn in the sense realm. They will, they have craving to be reborn in the former formless realms. So they are reborn in, uh, a, uh, uh, in another realm and they will achieve uh, their full enlightenment in this other realm without coming back to this one. So that's why they're called non-returners. All right, and then there are bhikkhus who are arhats with taints exhausted, who have lived out the life, done what was to be done, laid down the burden, reached the highest goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and who are completely liberated through final knowledge. So that's the fourth stage, the arhat. Okay, so now if we look at these in terms of craving and the uh, and, and self so we see that and, and I mentioned to you this before and I'll just remind you of it this uh, the self that we experience there's two aspects one is the, the idea the concept the mental construct the idea of who we are and, and what we are and that our ego revolves around. And that's all conceptual and uh, ideational. Uh, it's, it's that kind of mental construct. And the other part of it is the inherent sense I am. Just that feeling of existing separately from everything else. So these are the two aspects of self. And so the first one, the attachment to the conceptual view of self is lost when a person has that first experience of nirvana and of ultimate reality and see the way things really are then they, then they are free of that but they still have the inherent sense I am until they become an arhat because the last five fetters are about that sense I am okay with regard to craving, the stream entrant at the first stage has, has overcome doubt, self-view, and belief in rites and rituals 
but it doesn't say anything about them overcoming uh, desire and uh, aversion. So the stream enterer is still subject to de desire and aversion, except that they know better. They have, and, and they know better because they are stream entrants. And they also have the power of mindfulness that got them to become stream entrants. So what will happen because of desire and aversion and because they have these habits of behavior, they may still engage in behaviors that are unwholesome and they may still experience suffering. But with the difference that the unwholesome behaviors that they engage in won't be of a terribly serious nature and they will tend to very quickly realize and recognize that they are engaging in unwholesome behaviors and then they will do something, they will cease to do the unwholesome behavior and they will make amends, do their best to make amends. Yes? Uh, you said some people, they, they achieve this by accident. You know, actually everybody achieves this by accident, but some people without even meditating, yeah. they achieve this. So, so not necessarily have they established the, the mindfulness foundation. So how can they be, uh, you know, so... They will be at a disadvantage, yes. They'll be at a disadvantage, so not necessarily will they recognize that they did something, uh, uh, they, they made a poor judgment on something. Well, at, at some point, usually, usually what, you know, for, for somebody who has gone through a systematic process as well, for any stream entrant who engages in unwholesome behavior, it's because of a lapse in mindfulness. So the difference is that somebody who didn't go through the systematic training and doesn't have strong mindfulness will be more prone to lapses. But in either case, there is a lapse of mindfulness and it will be the unwholesome behaviors cause harm to other beings and cause harm to oneself. So at some point or another, the person realizes that they're causing harm and that's what rekindles their mindful awareness. And then knowing the emptiness of self and knowing the emptiness of phenomena they can easily break the pattern. They can easily let go of it. And that's why it doesn't go very far. Okay. Right? And uh, the same thing is true of suffering because patterns of behavior and the fact that a person still is subject to desire and aversion, a stream entrant will still experience suffering, but never the kind of suffering that they did before for exactly the same reason. They get into a mental... A, a mindset that is being driven by desire or aversion and they begin to suffer and the suffering doesn't get too far before they say, wait a minute, I don't have to let this happen anymore. I, you know, and they, and they can, then the mindfulness comes and they interrupt the process that is creating their suffering. Wouldn't many people not, not uh haven't achieved first fruition, they have, have these abilities, have, 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 the, have the ability that you just described, you know, they, they are mindful, they realize something's unwholesome, they stopped, you know, doing unwholesome things. Yes, that's it's, true. It's just yeah. logical. Well, yes, and, and that's right, it's completely, the only difference is, on the one hand, a question of degree, and on the other, the incredibly powerful 
tool that the stream engine has when they find themselves in this situation is that they know the falseness of the sense of self that's driving this, and they know the falseness of the uh, things that they are attached to or experience aversion towards. So it's through their knowledge of emptiness, of self and of things. This is a powerful tool that the person who's not a stream entrant doesn't have. Now, and this comes out, okay, how do you recognize a stream entrant? Yeah, what's the bulletproof test? What's the bulletproof test? Well, there really isn't a bulletproof test, but there's a, what would you call it, a, a bullet-resistant test? <laughs> if, someone, if someone is still strongly prone to behaviors that hurt other people and manifest them repeatedly, then for sure they're not a stream metric. And a person who keeps miring themselves in suffering of their own making, making is definitely not a stream entry. Every suffering is from our but, own making. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't I'm suggesting sorry. that there was another kind. I, I was just pointing out that it is of their own making. So if you see somebody suffering, you know, and if you know that like all suffering, it's of their own making, then you know you know, this person's probably not a stream entrant, right? On the other hand, if you find somebody who is, is very non-harming and, and, and doesn't engage in unwholesome behaviors and is, is good in many ways, and who likewise is, is happy and things don't bother them too much, you can't say absolutely for sure that they are a stream entrant. Mm -hmm. They still might not be, okay? But if they were a stream entrant, that's what you would expect to see, is that they are basically pretty mellow, not immune to suffering, not immune to mistakes and unwholesome activity, but pretty mellow and, and pretty virtuous. And since you know, all of us here are diligent practitioners, I wouldn't doubt within this lifetime, at least some of us here would achieve first vision. Well, I hope everybody here well, will at least, soon. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I, everybody practices diligently as they have in the past nine days. I think we all have, like, solid chances. That, that's exactly So how right. we examine, you know, um, the, the, especially about the first part, you know, uh, our, our uh, attachment to this, the, the view of itself, how do we know that we understand enough that there is no self? Okay. How do, how do you know yourself? Well, <laughs> yeah. how do you know you see for sure behind the curtain? Well, that's, yeah. no, no, that's, that is the problem because if you've seen behind the curtain, you're sure you've seen behind the curtain. But you could also not have seen behind the curtain and still be sure that you have. So that's that's why there's uncertainty about it. Yeah. So, because whether you, even if you haven't, you might think you have, and that is the problem. And the other thing is it actually seems that there are some people who don't ever remember seeing behind the curtain, but they know what's behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, so, uh, 
how would you know in well the, the thing is that the only way anyone can know is it, it stands the test of time and circumstances so if uh, if a meditator had an experience uh, that they were sure that they'd seen behind the curtain that they had had a, a, an awakening experience you know there are many different things that we could look at to make an educated guess. But the only way that that person can know for sure and that their teacher could know for sure, as it's certain, is to watch and see what kind of permanent change it's made in them that lasts over time. Permanent change. Just permanent. like a characteristic you described. It's a permanent change. So, and, but there's more to it than that. And let me go ahead and fill, finish for okay. okay. So a person becomes a stream enterer, we've talked about what's happened there, but they still have desire and aversion. When they become a once returner, when they reach the second stage, they have tremendously reduced desire and aversion, but they still have it. Now, your original question was, uh, how many times, you know, it was about, okay, this experience, it's called uh, fruition. The first time is called path, you know, when, when, you, uh, uh, when you have an experience of uh, ultimate truth, and as a result of that experience, you have attained to the first path and become a stream entrant. And then if you, if you have arrived at that experience by systematic practice, you can repeat it, in which case repeating the experience is called fruition, but it's the same thing. You're seeing ultimate truth again. And the more often that you do that, the better. Because for a stream entrant to become a once returner, they have to eliminate a lot of desire and aversion that they have, which is now possible because they're no longer attached to the view of self, which is why one has to come before the other. Now the view of self is gone. Now they can actually start destroying desire and aversion. So they continue to improve their chances of keep seeing it because they keep improving their virtue and wisdom. They keep improving their virtue and wisdom. So the right. odds of you know, getting hit by lightning over and over again becomes super, super likely. Becomes which? Super likely. Super duper yeah, that's likely. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. Now somebody to happen to by accident might be kind of stuck in terms of reaching the next stage of enlightenment. Although what they would probably do is say, Wow, I've got to figure out what's happened to me. I've got to learn more about this. And when they do, they'll take up meditation and then they will be able to, you know, they will acquire the, the necessary knowledge and skills to become a yeah, one That's why I'm here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the once returner also has a path experience. At, at some point, all of this becomes mature. And then once again, they have an experience of uh, uh, ultimate truth. But this time, different than the, than the previous experiences, which were first path fruition, 
Now this is second path attainment. Okay? Now it, bring, it brings about a further deep profound change in them. And so from this point on, desire and aversion are very weak and they are once returner. Same process leading to the complete destruction of sense desire and, and ill will leads to uh, a third path attainment experience and then subsequent to that there would be third path fruition experiences which then proceeding there eventually the third path person the non-returner will become they'll have a fourth path experience and they will become an arhat and then there will be no more learning and they, the, the holy life will have been lived the work that was to be done has been done the goal has been fulfilled but now we were talking or there was some question about what what's it like to be a first on the first path to be a stream entrant with regard to the sense of self and remember with regard to the sense of self the stream entrant the once returner and the non-returner are all exactly the same because they have overcome the attachment to self-view but they still experience the sense of existing separately right so now this particular description is by uh, uh, one of the disciples of Buddha who was the elder Kemaka and the elder Kemaka was a non-returner he attained to the third path but he's describing how it is for him and it would be exactly the same for a stream enterer or a, a, a once returner as it is for this non-returner he says of himself Elder Kemaka said I do not see in these five categories he means the five uh, uh, aggregates in these five categories affected by clinging any self or any self's property yet I am not an arahant with taints exhausted on the contrary I still have the attitude I am with respect to these five categories affected by clinging although I do not see I am this with respect to them I do not say I am form I am feeling I am perception I am formations I am consciousness nor do I say I am apart from these yet I still have the attitude I am with respect to the five categories although I, I, I sorry I still have the attitude I am with respect to the five categories although I do not see I am this with respect to them okay although a noble disciple may have abandoned the five uh, the first five fetters still his conceit I am desire I am underlying tendency I am with respect to the five categories is as yet unabolished later he abides contemplating rise and fall thus such as form such as origin such as disappearance and so on until by doing so this conceit I am eventually comes to be abolished as well 
But um, so this, this is this is a non-returner speaking about this, but it could have is as easily been a stream entry. I still experience this, but I know I uh, I still experience the feeling I am. So you could read this particular suit if you were thinking, you know, maybe I'm there. Let me see him. I like Kamaka. Right. So what does he say? He says. I still have the attitude I am with respect to the five aggregates, although I do not see I am this with respect to them. I do not say I am this one or that one or another one and so forth. So that's that would be, and if you're like that, if, if you don't have any of that attachment, if, if you have a sense of who and what you are, but you don't believe in it as being self-existently real. But, and, and that's don't believe in it at a very, very profound level. Because what happens in the process, when you like, come to understand it intellectually, then the, the feeling is still you know, pretty solidly there, the belief that, you know, well, it still feels like somebody's experiencing this. <laughs> it still feels like somebody's doing this. It still feels like there is a self here. Right? Even though intellectually you can say, well, I know that's not true. But then through meditation practice, you start to have the direct experience of there not being the self. The self, you know, that until you become convinced at the deepest level of your being that this is this is not true, and that's so. It, the insight leads to awakening in this way, but remember, the awakening has to accomplish a few other things. It has to leave you without doubt, because you can have the sense that yeah, you can be convinced that there is no self in these five aggregates, and become a nihilist. A materialist and feel like, well, life is just this pointless thing, you know. So that is the difference there. If you had seen ultimate reality, if you had, if you know nirvana, then you are not vulnerable in that way. So that's why this other fetter is an important one. It's not just enough. You also have to, uh, you also have to be beyond doubt. Now the interesting thing is, it seems that there's people who are beyond doubt but they don't remember having to look behind the curtain. That's just, the doubt's not there anymore, so. Well, no, I'm just thinking, if you ask, if you do a survey of, of Christians, yeah. and you ask them, do you have any doubts about your faith? I would say probably a good majority of them will say they have no doubt. But you know, how, how, how much no doubt is really no doubt? <laughs> well, that's exactly right. How much no doubt is really no doubt. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, what does it take to shake your faith? And many Christians, their faith can be shaken, but there's some I'm sure that it can. But this is different. This is coming from direct experience, from knowledge of something vastly having, not believing in something because you read about it and thought about it, but having an experience of something that is vastly beyond anything else you've ever experienced. And so that's pretty unshakable. So one last little thing that I do want to tell you about these four stages of enlightenment. They go by the name 
the other name for stream entrance stage is seven times returner. So we have seven times returner, once returner, non-returner, and aha. And uh, oh, my recorder's not on. That's okay, here's the backup. There's a backup, thank goodness. Yeah, the other one's on. It is. I wonder, wonder why this one is not on. That's okay. It is a backup. That's, that's why it's good to have a backup. It sure is. Hello in there. Are live? Oh, it says its memory is full. Memory is full. Memory is full. Oh, my goodness. I'll have to download it and get a copy from it. Scott here for my archives. Okay, the uh, <clears throat> you know the the idea as the way it's usually presented is that uh, the stream enterer, if he fails to become an arhat in this lifetime, will need at most to be reborn in in this realm seven times before they actually become an arhat, and the once returner needs to be reborn at most once. And the non-return, yeah? At most once, I mean, they can, it's possible that they won't even have it reborn. It's possible, yeah, at most. It's oh. possible they'll become an arhat in this time. Oh, okay. I see. And somebody who, let's put it this way, if you die as a, as a once returner, then you get recycled. Mm -hmm. But if you die as a non-returner, you don't come back. You go to, oh, you go to the special, heaven that's reserved for non-returners where there is a Buddha who will complete your training and you'll become an arhat there. Right? Oh really? Yeah. Wow, that's, that's, that's nice. the teaching. But, what, uh, but <clears throat> there is a little bit of conflict between this and the idea of there, there being really no self. You see that this terminology could make one believe that there's, there's a self. So another way of interpreting this and this fits with, this. you'll find this fits with the description I already gave you. Somebody who is a stream enterer, the so-called seven times returner, might lapse into the same kind of mental states and behaviors of suffering and unwholesome behavior several times and have to pull themselves back out of it in the course of their lifetime. So it means that they might, that they are still subject to occasional lapses. The once returner, that's an interesting thing, the once returner deliberately needs to go, they want to destroy the last vestiges of desire and aversion. So the path of the once returner to become a non-returner is to engage in the world in such a way that they expose the roots of their craving so that they can destroy it finally, once and for all. Oh, interesting. What does that mean, expose the roots of their craving? What's that? What does that mean, expose? That means that, uh, that they are, uh, the roots of their craving are exposed with the uh, being in, in the world, in the sense realm, so that there will still be things that trigger craving. And so when trigger is craving, but now it's very, very weak because they're once returned. When craving is revealed because it's triggered, then because it's weak, they can root it out. Uh, what about being tortured? So maybe they will want to come back and be 
tortured by some kind of marriage. <laughs> Maybe they would, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> but, but I'm trying to put this in the context of, you know, you know, of in one lifetime. That, you know, I'm trying to understand that, okay, a stream insurer is somebody who's still subject to lapses. A once returner isn't subject to the same kind of lapses, but they're still, they're still in the world and they're still experiencing desire and aversion. And they have to be because this is where they have to do the work. You know, If they... If, if your uh, once returner was uh, in a deva realm, they wouldn't get any work done. They wouldn't have any opportunity. All, you know, they, they just experience all this bliss and satisfaction. So there's, there's got to be, they've got to be in the sense realm where there, there are still those things to arouse the afflictions so that they can recognize these afflictions in their weakened form and overcome them and so become the non-returner. Now the non-returner is free from craving. So uh, in this lifetime, somebody that achieves the status of a non-returner no longer needs ever to return to the status of being subject to craving or being prone to uh, uh, unwholesome uh, behaviors. They're beyond all that. So that's another way of understanding these, these terms seven times once in non-returner. Okay? Now maybe the last little thing, boy, are we ever running out of time? We need another day on this retreat. All right, let's do another day. I'll call my boss. <laughs> uh, I'll just give you a little more direction where you want to go in your insight practice. You want to come to understand as clearly as you can impermanence, emptiness, no, no self, and uh, the suffering nature of the, uh, the suffering that arises from clinging to things that are empty and impermanent. And at the same time, you want to develop powerful equanimity, both the, your, your concentration practice and your mindfulness practice will result in very, very powerful equanimity. Because I said that you it will, in order for you to be able to experience ultimate truth, your mind needs to stop fabricating the illusion, which is the curtain that obscures and keeps you from seeing things as they truly are. So what, what brings you to the point where your mind suddenly just stops creating the obscuration for a short period of time? and allows you to penetrate and see ultimate truth is very, very strong equanimity along with a very, very profound recognition of, of impermanence, emptiness, and suffering. When the three characteristics are right in the forefront of your awareness and you have very strong equanimity, then when in the next moment your mind would produce another fantasy for you to live in and another one and another one, it comes to that point and it has no taste for it. You have to get yourself to the point where your mind has absolutely no taste for continuing this grasping. And so it doesn't grasp and in that moment of non-grasping this is when 
the reality, uh, the, the, the ultimate reality becomes apparent. Equanimity is the opposite of craving. So to say you have equanimity means that you don't have that compulsion towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. To have equanimity means that you stop reacting to pleasant and unpleasant. It doesn't mean that things stop being pleasant and unpleasant, because they do. They continue to be just as pleasant and just as unpleasant as before. But you stop reacting to pleasant and unpleasant with craving and grasping, because equanimity is the opposite of craving. And so as your equanimity gets stronger and stronger and stronger, eventually there isn't any craving. And where there's no craving, there's no grasping. And where there's no grasping, there's no becoming. So you have a moment of being. Okay? Can you give like an example of life An example of equanimity? A concrete, well, to describe equanimity, well, when something happens that causes physical pain, for example, and you just find yourself completely accepting it with no resistance, that's equanimity. When something happens that brings great pleasure and you find yourself accepting it with no attachment, no, no urge to hold on to it, no, uh, uh, no urge to have more of it, it's, that's equanimity. Um, there is When pleasure is ple present and the desire to continue it does not arise in your mind, or when pleasure is potential and the desire to pursue it does not arise in your mind, then that would be equanimity. When pain is present and there is no compulsion to eliminate it, that's equanimity. When pain is imminent and there is no compulsion to avoid it. Now, this doesn't mean that you might not still have reason and wisdom and say, oh, <laughs> it makes sense to take my hand out of the fire. <laughs> All right? But uh, in terms, in more practical terms, what, what it feels like is that the ups and downs of ordinary daily life, moment-to-moment -moment life, don't affect you. They stop affecting you. You feel you stop reacting to them. You know, uh, things have all, all day long, as you especially know this from being quiet and paying attention and sitting still, all day long there's all kinds of discomforts and, and pains of different kinds that come and go. Right? And you've seen your reactivity be stronger, and you've seen your reactivity be weaker towards those pains. And so it's the diminished reactivity that we're talking about that's equanimity. So the stronger the equanimity, the more the reactivity is diminished. And likewise, some of you I know have experienced this because you've, you've talked to me about it in your 
meditation reports is that the same thing with pleasure. You find yourself eating or experiencing something outside and you'll find that although it's still pleasant, you don't have this desire, you know, if, you, if it's something that tastes good, you know, you don't, uh, you don't feel that usual compulsion to hurry up and have another bite, you know, or to uh, wonder if when you finish what's on your plate, if there's going to be some left in the tray that you go back for, you know, that kind of thing. It's that diminished uh, desire, d reactive, positive reactivity in form of desire. Three or four years ago, I asked about the ice cream. Yeah. You know, you're mm -hmm. talking about pleasure, but not attaching to it. And if you were enjoying the ice cream, but then boom, it falls on the floor, and you don't mind. No, nope, you don't mind. You just on to the next thing. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually kind of funny sometimes. It's like, you know, when some, something bad happens, it's kind of funny. It's ironic. Like, oh, man. <laughs> you laugh about it. So as you practice, your equanimity will grow stronger. One effect of concentration is to produce, produce very profound equanimity. The stronger, you know, when you when you go into deep stages of concentration, and then you get up from meditation and you go out, you, you have much more equanimity. You don't react to the same degree. Yeah. Just like if you use equanimity to practice on a cancer patient. If you lose equanimity, you use equanimity. Like if I have cancer right now. Yeah. And. When you talk about equanimity, uh, I just accept I have cancer. That's right. And but I'm not eager to go to see different doctor to do a chemical therapy or well, something. You, you wisdom will tell you to go see those. Well, it, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't go and see just as many doctors and do something about it. Uh, but you wouldn't be compelled by the fear of of, of dying. Instead, you you would it would make sense. There's people in the world that depend on you and care about you. There's things that you can do in the world, you know. So there's all kinds of good reasons to go ahead and see doctors. You see, there's an illusion that well, if I had cancer, the only reason that I would go and seek care is because I would be afraid of dying, and that's not true. You still got intelligence. You still got wisdom. You still have purpose in, in the world, and you still have. Uh, all con there's all kinds of good logical reasons. You don't need to be emotionally compelled to do it. Now, if there were no emotionally compelling reasons, then maybe, I mean, if there were no, sorry, if, if there were no intellectual reasons and no emotions, then maybe you wouldn't. But then maybe that would be no problem, too. But anyway, the, the point is that you want to have more and more equanimity because the more equanimity you have and the more clearly you are aware of the three characteristics, the more likely it is that at some point your mind is just going to stop for a minute and the world's going to stop and you're going to be able to see things as they really are. And this is actually why it's an accident because, you know, um, even if you haven't done a lot of practice to develop equanimity, and even if you don't have a deep understanding of the three characteristics, if for one reason or another your mind happens to come to that place where there just doesn't arise any tendency to grasp 
you know, to continue the reality in the next stage. In other words, if for whatever reason you just go into a state of being and not becoming, then the same thing can happen to you. I mentioned Eckhart Tolle to you the other night. He wrote a book, uh, The Power of Now, and uh, he's written another book since then. I can't remember. The Power of what? The Power of Now. The Power of Now. What's the name of his second book? Oh, I just got Okay, it doesn't matter, but... Being here is now. Being here is now. Being here is now. Be here now. That was Ram Dass. Oh, be, be here now is Ram Das. Uh, this is. I didn't mention the name of this book the other night. It, it, it doesn't matter though. The point is that you see, his, he never practiced Buddhism. He was very, very depressed and miserable and suicidal, and this went on for a long, long time. And then one day, in the depths of his despair, something happened, and his mind just stopped generating all of this stuff and he became awakened and so now he became a teacher and he's trying to teach other people how to have the experience he had but the disadvantage he has is that he didn't have his experience as a result of a systematic training so it's so he's giving a lot of talks and trying to come up with a way to lead people to have that experience but he's a really good teacher he's a really good teacher what's his name Eckhart Tolle T-O-L-L-E is his last name. Is he the virtual guy? Um, no, he's a real short, funny-looking guy. Looks funny, <laughs> talks <laughs> funny. Well, he's not so funny, but he's going to be here. Sounds like Woody Allen. They're not as big as mine. No. <laughs> Anybody whose ears are as big as mine, I notice. He's very unusual. Anyway, so that's that's the secret of the whole thing. Absolutely. Last question. Yeah. Um, since since you since you're a person uh, committed to telling the truth, I, I, I like to ask. You know, do you think all of oh, us have? Up. Absolutely. All yeah. of us. I, I, absolutely. Everyone. And you're a man of, of, of you know, deeply committed to the truth. <laughs> Every, everyone here has the potential. Uh, the only thing I would say, <laughs> some people here, you know, and, and I'm not saying who or anything else like that, there's some people here who don't yet realize just how much more diligent they might have to be. But, you know, I, that. Other than that, the, the diligence is a really important part of it. But if you're diligent, yeah, everybody in this room. Uh, and why stop at stream entry? There's, there's nobody in this room who couldn't become an arhat. The only thing, the only thing standing between you and becoming an arhat is how fully you put yourself into your practice. And if you want to know the truth, you can't decide and say, all right, that's it, I'm gonna put myself fully into it. What you have to do is you go out, have, you have to go out there 
and feed this in every way you can every day from this moment on. So read things, uh, go to Dharma talk, meditate, meditate more, uh, you know, learn more, practice more diligent, practice mindfulness in circumstances you thought it wasn't possible to practice mindfulness. But remember that what your five aggregates does in any moment, you know, whether you choose the Dharma or the movie, you know, is going to be determined by uh, the, the kinds of mental formations that you accumulate. So what I'm saying is if you want to have the kind of dedication and diligence that's necessary, then you've got to go and acquire the right influences. Hang around with other people whose primary interest is the Dharma. Uh, listen to Dharma talks. Read books about Dharma. Meditate. Practice mindfulness. So most importantly, surround yourself with Dharma friends because as you said in, in the story you read, That's that right. is the whole practice. So That's, if you have lots of, yeah. if you're surrounded by Dharma friends, you're there already. You, you don't need it. <laughs> Yes, that is something we call you every day. <laughs> okay. I've told you before you could. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. So that's uh, you say you can use your smartphone to watch movie. You are just uh, watch, but you are not doing no. that. But my question is, how about when you read a book or study? How to use smartphone? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> because study or something you have to memorize, right? Mm -hmm. You need to understand. So, how can you use smartphone to separate that? You mean, are are you asking me how do you practice mindfulness while you're reading a book? Uh -huh. Oh, I'll try it out. What you'll find is, of course, when your mind is fully engaged with reading the words and understanding the meaning. There's not much other, you don't have much other capacity of conscious awareness to be doing anything else. But if you practice mindfulness while you read a book, you'll find that between the top of the page and the bottom of the page, your mind goes a whole lot of other places and does a whole lot of other things. So does that mean having introspective awareness when we eat? You can have introspective awareness Is that the same as mindfulness? Read. Right. So you read the first three lines. And your mind wanders off to something that has nothing to do with this wonderful sutra that you're reading. I mean, if you're mindful, you'll know that. Or counting, or whatever. What? Or what if you're studying something other than a sutra? Oh, if you're studying, that's all right. If you're, doesn't matter what you're reading. Uh, the, the thing is that if you notice what happens when you read a page from a book, if you think that you open the book, and your mind is 100% totally focused on the words from the top of the page to the bottom, you better go back and check again, because I don't think that happens to any of you. <laughs> your mind wanders all over the place between the top of the page and the bottom. So there's a lot of scope for practicing mindfulness. No wonder I never get those A's. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if nothing else, the practice of mindfulness will allow you to study more quickly and learn better because it will reduce the amount of mind wandering. But also, sometimes the mind wandering is wholesome and sometimes it's unwholesome. You read something and it causes a thought and so you're thinking about what you read and it's, it's, it's wholesome and it's beneficial. 
But sometimes your mind just kind of drifts off and you really didn't understand the last sentence, but your mind's off doing something else. You know, if you have introspective, uh, introspective awareness, you realize that and you bring your focus back to what you're doing. Yes? Um, what's the relationship between the 10 stages that you described and the jhanas? Uh, the, the absorptions uh, are a, a continuation. The jhanas are a continuation of the 10 stages. Well, actually, there are two kinds of jhanas. There are deep jhanas and light jhanas. To do the deep jhanas, you need to get to the 10th stage. To do the light jhanas, you can start those in the 7th stage, uh, in the latter part of the 7th stage when you start having some some uh, joy, you know, some, some PT starts to arise. Then you can practice the light jhana.